I had been called by my employer and told that I wasn't to come in for my following shifts because there was an issue that they needed to discuss with me. And I knew immediately what that issue was. To me, there was no, oh, well, could it have been, could have been this? Did, did I make a mistake? I knew right away. And, you know, it, it's, it was simultaneously terrifying and anxiety producing and the greatest feeling of relief I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. And I, I, you know, I remember being in my, in my truck about to go out, um, you know, go to the store and I, I got this phone call and I remember thinking shit and then thinking, Oh my God, I am out of this. Yeah. I don't, I don't have to do this, this charade for another hour of another day. And the relief was just, just monumental relief to me. The, that fact that I felt <laughs> that sense of relief tells me that I wasn't totally gone. You know, that there was a, a, a shred of my true nature that was still, still very much left intact in that, you know, what I thought was I can get back to being who I really am. I could get back to my family, get back to my son. Now that's not to say that I never had anxiety throughout this process because the next day I, I know that I did, but that initial feeling was I'm out of this. I'm out of this. And I think I was really working myself towards a crisis. I knew that I knew that based on sort of how my last uh, couple of weeks of shifts had gone. And so to be out of it meant that I could maybe start to get my life back. So after I was, after I was called and, and told that I was, wasn't to be coming into work until I met with, met with them, I took it upon myself to kind of get that ball rolling and, you know, called my union, called the legal side of my union and reported myself to my union. And, you know, things took off initially quite quickly from there. And I had, you know, that was on a, I think a Wednesday or Thursday that all of that happened. So, you know, and just on a couple of interesting sort of personal anecdotes about, about that time was that, you know, we had just had this massive fall storm and um, it had knocked a part of my, part of my fence down. And so my backyard was entirely exposed to the neighbors. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that was kind of <laughs> symbolic of, of what was about to happen to me. And, uh, and ironically, it was my, it was my family who came over and helped me put this fence back together. And all the while I had this secret, I knew that I needed to tell them that I was going to have to go off work and that I was addicted to opiates. But what I was trying to get through was my son's birthday. And I had already committed to hosting my son's second birthday. So in my mind, I thought, well, this was like a Thursday or Friday, get through to Monday, wasn't sleeping, planning this children's birthday party, feeling again, and by, by that time, you know, my anxiety and that initial relief had kind of faded and it right. was more the feeling of, of the walls crashing in on me, but got through this party through a, for all intents and purposes, a normal, a normal birthday party. And then, you know, the, the Monday after the party went over to my parents' house and, and talked to them. It takes a certain amount of energy to keep any secret, right? 
Yeah. And I saw all this stuff in a, in a kind of a, a visual representation. It was moving and it, uh, it, it kind of broke me down in a strange way. And when I woke up in the morning, I just, I, I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, I have to, I can't continue with this hiding, you know, whatever the situation is. And I, and I ended up calling up a, a colleague that I respect a lot. And uh, I kind of discussed it with her a little bit. And she kind of came to, you know, she she was encouraging in that she thought that it would be best for me to, to you know, get my family on my side. You need your, you need your support people, right? And so I called them up and I, I told them what was going on. And it was a brutal, brutal situation. Of course, they were completely... Uh, they were shocked, but they were loving and supportive, as you can imagine. I'm very fortunate to have fantastic parents that way, which, you know, that's not the case for some people. And that was my first experience with seeing such a contrast between the burden of carrying that around and the enlightenment of shedding that lie. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> And it was, uh, there was something maybe a little bit rejuvenating about it. It gave me hope when I hadn't, there was no hope for a long time. What was it like to tell your family? Interesting. I told my sister beforehand. And so she kind of knew it was coming in. And my best friend said, why don't you come over to my house and I'll make some tea and you'll have, and your parents can come over too. And we'll tell them together. And so I told them, I just said, I think I have a problem with alcohol. And there was like that sheer look of, I'm sure we've all, <laughs> all of our parents have had that like kind of split second look of like disappointment and sadness and just shock, I guess. And instantly it was, okay, well, how are we going to, what do we, what do we do now? Let's get you better. And, uh, and they gave me a big hug and my mom said, you know, we got this. And my dad said, you know, like, I totally get it. I understand where you're coming from. So, and it was just not even a big deal. I mean, obviously they probably were very, very upset, but I think for them, they said it was a huge relief to have me finally tell them that something was wrong. And that really opened up the communication with my family and I, like they had no idea that I was struggling with my divorce. I didn't even tell them I was separated for six months, like, you know, kind of carried on with, I don't want to like get too much into my family dynamic, but there were a lot of things that I think families do that sweep things under the rug. And that was, that was our family just swept our problems under the rug. And so now I was kind of forcing some of the problems to come out of the rug and now we have to fix them, which has been really great. The last five years have been nothing but wonderful in terms of opening up communication and being honest and truthful with one another. Yeah. It's really changed our family for the better. It was more the stuff that came after that when I could step back and realize how in shambles my life was 
And I had to tell my parents a whole bunch of really bad news things all in a row that was worse. Like, I think that it was worse because they were like, okay, we understand alcoholism a little bit and we can handle this. The rest of the stuff that came afterwards, they were just like, holy shit. That was, I think, more of a shock to them. But they also handled it very graciously and have been nothing but supportive. So... Well, I think that's why um, a lot of overdoses that we're experiencing in British Columbia right now are done in private. You know, it's, this, it's not in a public setting. It's not with a friend. People are overdosing alone. And I think that the reason they're alone is because of the shame that's attached to that uncontrolled behavior there. If you look at historically, banishment from the tribe was deadly. We, we are social creatures and we rely on each other. And we cannot, you know, in, in the wilds, we can't survive on our own. For examples of that, that I can think of, if people aren't familiar with addiction in particular, is how often people, when they're choking in public at a, like a public restaurant, their immediate response is not to wave their arms and ask for help. It's to run to the bathroom to be private and deal with it privately, even though that's, if they don't get help, they may die. It's a very deadly reaction. So they would rather die then face the shame of the fact that they're choking in public. And it also happens when people get lost in the bush, they will come out to a road. And then when somebody comes along, they will immediately go back into the bush because they don't want to be caught in that situation that they're ashamed about is how stupid can I be that I got lost? And they will actually risk their life by evading, you know, help, which is maybe a couple of examples that People aren't struggling with addiction or don't recognize that, you know, maybe they can identify with that a little bit better, that it was that shame can be deadly in that way. Well, I think at that time, the biggest help that I had with the issue of drinking came from my wife. And she is an extremely strong person. She did things that sort of built in, she developed a very routine structure, which I live by for our home life. Everything was predictable. We talked a lot. We uh, talked endlessly. Mm -hmm. And as we went through that, and particularly started planning for our two youngest children coming and joining us, life changed because then we moved, we moved into a house. Our life became, in my view, much more positive to maintain the house and the yard. There was, there was a focus of work that had to be done, and I'm the one that's going to do it. My wife's family was extremely helpful, all of them, in terms of their assistance. And they had a history in parts of her family with alcohol issues as well. So they, they knew what their sister and their daughter was dealing with. But at the same time, they were extremely fair and, and good to me. My wife, she was the one that established and provided me strength. And I had a lot of time to think about that. She was the, the godsend for me.
to provide the support and understanding to try to get me to the next step and the next step and the next step. Because I don't think I could have gone on a lot longer without something uh, happening that either destroyed my life or both our lives. Yeah, I mean, me, I'm just, I'm like an old school dope fiend, you know, I'm middle-aged now when I was a kid uh, or teenager, started doing heroin when there was still heroin around here. And, um, uh, you know, I used that for a decade, decade and a half. And then I got on methadone and I used, continued to use heroin and other opioids and sort of gradually got to mostly doing methadone. And, and that's kind of where I am now, but along the way, kind of survived a bunch of big public health crises around here. There was an overdose crisis of really strong heroin in the 90s, and now the overdose crisis of uh, fentanyl and, and all that, which is even bigger and has been going on here for six years. And in fact, it's so big that they declared it a public health emergency. You know, like the official coroners and the, the public health people get up and say, okay, this is an emergency. It's really bad. So uh, yeah, I mean, surviving. And then also, I guess a big part of my life has been activism. I've been an organizer with the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users for a bunch of years, fighting for decriminalization, the end of the drug war, fighting against the over-policing of our communities. And um, another big part of my life is death. I've overdosed. Uh, lots and lots of people I know have overdosed. Probably half the people I came up with are gone now. So uh, my world is really crowded with ghosts. You know, it's just um, all the time. And I feel like, you know, I tried to put all this crap behind me. I tried to be like, okay, heroin and cops and grinding and scoring and being dope sick, all that. I just don't ever want to think about that anymore. I just try to put my head down, take my methadone, go to work. But uh, my friends, my community, this crisis calls me back, you know, like calls me into action. And like, I have to be part of the, you know, one of the foot soldiers fighting back against the drug war. And so that's what I do. You know, I guess I had survivor's guilt and I couldn't. I couldn't turn away from something that was killing everybody and nearly killed me. And so I guess I spend a lot of my days fighting to end that. I'm a frontline organizer. That means like we have meetings and actions and campaigns involving people who are using every day, people who are using in the meetings. Like we're, we're right organizing right amongst the people who are most vulnerable to this, but I don't work at a safe injection site. You know, like I don't work like right next to somebody who's using all the time every day. You know, like I, I know my own limits and, you know, I think that's just, that would be kind of too, too intense, too much for me, but yeah, there's lots of death and I deal with that uh, probably the same way a lot of, a lot of other people do that sometimes it gets on top of me and I just feel all kinds of broken. Sometimes I feel so angry. I can't swallow properly. Sometimes I feel so numb. I just um like just walking like a zombie through the world and I think it just vacillates between all of that. But the only thing I know that makes it feel, doesn't make it feel better, but it sort of dulls the stab a little bit is to be with other people who are feeling the same thing. So at the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, that's the drug user union here in Vancouver, we hold funerals for our members all the time. And we try to remember them together and to hold them close together. We hold a moment of silence at the end of every meeting where we all say the names of people that we're missing and thinking about. And the best person doing that is um, Brian. 
he's a member, he's an activist. And he says, if you're a Vandu member, you're a member forever. So he doesn't just mean for life. He means like, once you're with us, we'll never forget you even after you die. And sometimes only people will remember somebody. So being together with your comrades in the struggle is, is probably the, one of the ways I, I get by. How did you go from that pre-crisis state to, to reporting yourself to the college? It was about a 48-hour period. It happened very quickly. So I decided I was going to kill myself. And then I was like, I shouldn't kill myself. That's really dumb. <laughs> and I also just really want to do more cocaine. So whatever. Um, I basically like, was too executively disorganized. <laughs> now that's honesty, folks. It was that's all of a sudden honesty. the next day and I didn't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that still didn't happen. So... <laughs> I started talking to Greg and, and, you know, I started going to meetings, like 12 step meetings with a friend of mine who basically set a boundary with me was just like, I'm not going to hang around with you when you're using because she had a history of using stimulants and just wasn't really comfortable with it. And I I was just like, whatever, I'm just not going to tell you anyway. But yeah, I started going to meetings and sort of like understanding that I was powerless, but very quickly after that realized that I did not have the tools to abstain from using. Mostly because I was not willing to stop drinking. So yeah, I went to a couple of meetings. I very quickly realized that I was not going to be able to stop. And I had this job that I was supposed to start this full-time position in the ICU. And I was like, I'm fucked. And oddly, I had a classmate from Langara who had gone to Homewood. And so I reached out to them and I just said, like, I don't know what to do here. And she just said, you know what? You will not lose your job. And I was like, yeah, fuck it. And I emailed the college because it was a weekend. I think I emailed the college. Directly. Just, you emailed them first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> I can't work. So the registrar of the college just like emailed me back and was like, don't go to work. I'll call you. And I was like, okay, well, and then I called, yeah, I emailed the college and said, Hey, I'm struggling. I don't think I should be working. I don't think I'm fit to practice. And they were like, you are not fit to practice by the sounds of it. Do not go to work. Call in sick for your next set. And uh, we'll be in touch on Monday. And this really kind lady who is no longer there called me on Monday and she just said, Hey, okay. So this is the situation. You're going to be okay. Don't go to work. I will get the union rep to call you. And don't tell your employer what's going on. Just tell them you're sick. And I was like, okay, thank you, kind lady from the college. Called in sick for a job I hadn't even finished orientation for. And just said that I thought it was going to be that I may be off for a while, that I was struggling with some, some health issues. So that was the beginning of May. And then I went on a real good bender. <laughs> then all hell broke loose. Like Then it was like 9 a.m. cocaine. You know what ended up happening is I left Vancouver. I came to Edmonton um, because I was going to die. There's no question in my mind that I was going to die. I had started, you know, I was going downtown to pick up. I was using dealers that I didn't know. I owed a lot of people money. I was looking at needles, like all sorts of things were happening. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I was like, well, if I'm going to go to treatment, I might as well really go to treatment. Yeah. I just kind of went on this bender and that was the beginning of May. I ended up going, I checked into Homewood June 12th. 
And there was some interesting discussions that happened that week. You know, my mom really understood it. And, and my dad, bless him, did not. Like, he would still talk about, you know, people who use drugs as those people. And I was just like, but dad, I'm those people. And he's like, no, you're not. You're not those people. And I was like, I'm actually going into an institution on the other <laughs> side of the country. And I don't have a license to practice nursing. I am those people. I'm happy to hop up on my soapbox right now and Go just say, it. if you are not in British Columbia and you're looking over here and saying, oh my God, BC has a safe supply. In reality, we do not have a safe supply of drugs. We do not have a regulated and accessible and effective option to supplant the illegal drug supply to have a meaningful impact on overdose death rates. We have the makings of it. We have some early uh, starting points for it. And many of the ways in which it's being delivered currently is in a way that's super inaccessible for people. And so truth be told, there's around 90,000 British Columbians at risk of overdose, maybe more, who are accessing the illegal drug supply. And the last estimates from the province was around 3,600 people who had accessed some form of a safe supply, which equates to exactly 4% of the people who may need it. The concentration of that uptake has been almost exclusively in Victoria and Vancouver's downtown east side. And then the ways in which the drugs have been provided have not been effective in actually uh, curbing someone's reliance on the illegal drug supply and ultimately reducing risk. When BC first rolled out uh, safe supply or risk mitigation guidance prescribing, they did so uh, very wrongfully under the guise of COVID-19 prevention. And so they came out with safe supply because they believed a lot of people who use drugs were going to get sick by COVID. They were going to need to isolate. And while isolating, they would not be able to access their regular drug supply. And so they would provide a prescription, a short-term prescription of hydromorphone tablets that would help avoid experiences of withdrawal and dope sickness. And so in that, in that entire framing, First, they connected safe supply to COVID-19. And what that means is that for someone who's going to prescribe a safe supply, they don't know if this is a permanent intervention. They don't know if when COVID ends, they'll still be allowed to prescribe safe supply. And so it gave it the air of impermanence, which if you're a doctor or a person who's able to offer this intervention, like a nurse practitioner, uh, there's ethics behind starting someone on an intervention that you don't know if you can actually maintain. And what are you going to do if you have to cut them off? So yeah. much harm has been done by deprescribing across the country and in, oh. in, in all of North America. People die from deprescribing and forced tapering. And so that immediately threw some, some trepidation in prescribers' hands. But then they framed it as a withdrawal management tool. And in essence, what that meant is they were saying safe supply is treatment. And safe supply is not treatment. Safe supply is meant to be about agency of choice and about people having the right to know what they're putting in their bodies and the ability to access that full stop. But when they framed it as a withdrawal management tool, they basically said people are only going to use this if they're dope sick. 
And people use drugs for so many reasons. Yeah. And so it was delivered the wrong way. The type of drug that was offered, just tablet hydromorphone uh, at low dose ranges was not what people were asking for. People have been asking for diacetyl morphine or prescription heroin for years. They've been asking for compassion clubs, buyers clubs. Uh, people have been asking for actual safe regulated supply of fentanyl versus the fentanyl that they're taking, which is contaminated with all sorts of benzodiazepines. Uh, we tested a sample just a couple of weeks ago that contained carfentanil, fentanyl, etizolam, fluoroprazolam, and lidocaine. It's shocking. He somehow knew that I, that was what I needed, right? Mm. And he was right in a terrifying way. He facilitated the situation for me, and he he does this a lot. He, he's good at what he does. And um, it's the single most profound experience I've ever had in my life. The mushroom experiences are beautiful, and some of them have been profound. But this one was just the clarity of it and the experience. Immediately after I, I smoked the DMT, and I'm going to try to respect this as much as I can, this speaking about this reality immediately changed to some sort of artificial structure, beautifully artificial, but more real than the reality I'm currently in, which was a conundrum. It was a quick shift into artificialness and then boom, blasted out of my mind. And it felt like a journey through time, through the cosmos. It happened very quickly, but I remember seeing alien worlds, civilizations, planets, ships. Like, I mean, this could all just be some manifestations of the psyche, but you end up in a spot that feels like home, feels like the center of the universe. And what I'm staring at is either myself or something else that is in the shape of a human, but energy, pure energy. And it's just looking back at me, laughing at me. It's laughing. And it's saying, you bozo, Chris, you know, you think you're so smart and you are quite clever, but you're really stupid at the same time. Really? You know that, right? Like, do you know how sick you are? And that's, that's a hard thing to hear, right? It's like, we love you. And it's not even that the way you're living your life is wrong. It's just that you're angry and you're resentful and you're using that in strange ways. And now you're involving us in your fucking shenanigans. And this is unacceptable. Full stop. Because if you continue this path, you'll be removed from the game. And that fucking scared the piss out of me. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that is just in my mind. But it literally was like, we love you and don't stop moving forward in a beautiful direction, doing what you're doing. But just realize that this is a game, but it's a serious one. And I don't know if that was all in my imagination or what. I came back and my friend was sitting there and I looked at him. And he said, you're coming out, you're coming out, it's okay. And then he goes, you're going back in, you're going back in. And then it happened again. And I, was, I don't know how he knew that. But I went back in and the, it appeared again. It said, make sure you tell your friend that you love him and give him a hug. <laughs> and then I came back out and I just looked at him and I said, can I have a hug? And he just said, yeah, man, yeah. And
I appreciate that. I mean, I I owe it to the the people I surround myself with, to my environment. You know, the people that are there. Nathan, you're one of those people, right? Your podcast, that's an environment. It's a space that's really it gives me a lot of insight. So even though we can't connect as much as it would be great, um, we both run busy lives, like I can connect with you there. And I don't agree with everything you discuss, but I, I agree with much more than I disagree with. And we're all just on a path, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, my, my coach, he, he sent me something when I, I was beating myself up on, on me. He's like, man, you need to have some grace with yourself. Be patient. He's like, you haven't met who you're becoming yet right? Like you're, you're just on this journey. And I, I love, again, I, I'm reading, I'm even reading those Ryan holiday books with, I'm not plugging them by the way. He's just, it is just, I think they're so great. Um, I'm reading the one with my son right now. Cause he's very much like me. He's a very busy, very active kid. And so we're reading stillness is the key and it's way over his head, but he gets the important parts. And then, you know, honestly, I love watching Kung Fu Panda with him because Kung Fu Panda is the answer to everything right? It's like Zen and, and Chi and wisdom. Like you just got to listen to Ugwe. <laughs> so like <laughs> we're, we're watching it the other morning It's five 30 in the morning and him and I are sitting down there and he's just watching it. And I'm like, you know, enjoying my, my quiet morning time with him. And he's like, dad, Ugwe's talking about what we read in the book last night. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, man, he is right. And like, but because, because I'm sober, because I didn't drink the night before, I get up at 5.30 in the morning. I feel really good. And I sit there with him. I'm, I'm present. And that fills my heart. It fills my heart like you can't believe. And then the other stuff doesn't get to me during the day. And I don't feel a need to, to drink or drug or whatever. Right? And so I think like a big part of our recovery is, is protecting, protecting ourselves, filling our buckets with all of this positive stuff that is all around us and being really careful about the negative stuff we allow to impact us.